This week on the Backtable Podcast. If there's a, a bad complication, in some hospital settings, people jump away. I didn't jump away. I stepped right up. I made sure that I was there. But the people who jumped away were the people who were ultimately held responsible. And, and one thing to remember is that in some settings, uh, especially Philadelphia, there are more lawyers out of work than doctors, and they'll take any case. There's no right. doubt about it that there are some bottom feeders. The majority yeah. of them are, are good attorneys, and you know sometimes a suit will be brought just because you know the, the family is irate, but it doesn't mean they're going to find a, an expert witness who's going to agree with them. And that's the key in many malpractice cases. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back to Bill podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and backtable.com. This is Aaron Fritz as your host this week. I'm very excited to introduce my special guest, a mentor of mine since I was a resident back at Pennsylvania Hospital uh, in years to, uh, 2008 to 2012, Dr. David Ball. Thank you for coming on, David. Uh, it's my pleasure. Dr. Ball, David, will you just tell us a bit about where you, you've been and where you are at today? Sure. After my fellowship in Philadelphia at uh, Jefferson, I uh, took an attending position at the Philadelphia Veterans Administration Hospital. It was a rather unique location, and I was rescued out of there by a vascular surgeon, Dr. Andrew Roberts, who brought me to Medical College of Pennsylvania. After Medical College of Pennsylvania, for lack of a better term, started to fall apart, I went uh, back to the place where I'd done my residency, Temple University Hospital. I was there for about 10 years. Then I went to private practice. After that, I joined a couple of my former fellows in a freestanding interventional group. And when that practice was forced to close by uh, evil hospital administrators, I moved on to doing just locums IR and creating contracts uh, for myself with uh, hospitals and with uh, vascular centers. That's what I'm doing now. And you're, you're in Philadelphia? I'm in Philadelphia, but I have worked as far away as uh, Goodyear, Arizona, when necessary. Gotcha. Am I correct in that you do warmer months up north and then kind of spend the, the winter months down in Tucson? Yeah. So we escape to Tucson uh, when it starts to get cold here. Philadelphia is one of those places where if it gets two raindrops or one snowflake, traffic stops. People right. just don't know how to drive. So uh, going out to the, the west, it's just much more sane. You know what I love, though? The years I was there uh, in Philly were the, we had a couple of blizzards during those years, and I loved everything shutting down. And just being able to walk around Center City, feel like you're back in time because there were no cars in the street. There was just, you know, kind of drunk people walking around Old Town. Well, that was, you know, if you remember correctly, that was the same when the Phillies were uh, taking the pennant. That's true. So the, yeah. the entire city shut down. You couldn't <laughs> drive anywhere. And uh, right. the only that thing that crazy. came close is when the Pope came to visit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when was that? I think it was after the Phillies, but uh, okay. uh, I, I didn't track either too closely. Well, today we're going to talk a little bit about complications and for members, for the audience, if you missed episode 154, where the back table team, uh, Sabine, Chris, Mike, and myself, we discussed, we, we had, we put out a complication survey back in, uh, over the summer and we kind of discussed the results of those and told a few of our own stories. I suggest the audience goes back and take a listen. There's some good information in there, especially from Chris and Mike and Sabine. Dr. Paul, I wanted to talk to you about complications because, you know, you being a mentor of mine over the years have, have told me some stories and definitely, uh, you know, I've 
been fortunate to learn from those stories and, and take those with me so that I don't make those, those mistakes. But in, when I pitched the idea of this topic to you, you, you joked about calling it uh, Tales from the Crypt, which is hilarious. I, I, I remember that show because I was like in middle school and uh, I remember that, that, that creature and it, just such a goofy show. But from, I, I want to ask you from your perspective, why do you think as docs, we have such a hard time, you know, talking about complications? Is it ego, fear of judgment? What do, what do you think? I think we're trained early on to get A's in all tests. And this starts, you know, as early as elementary school. And it certainly runs through taking the boards to get into uh, medical schools. And it goes even further. The, the goal is always perfection. So when you go to take your radiology boards or your IRDR, every step along the way, the goal is, is really to be right. And it's very hard for people who are right 99.9% .9 of the time to be wrong 0.1% of the time. Uh, and once you are wrong, uh, for whatever reason, you know, and when I would go to the surgical M&Ms, I would always say that there were only three components on their uh, wheel of misfortune, and that is uh, radiology, anesthesia, and patient disease, because the surgeons are never wrong. So one of the problems we have as physicians is, you know, we're trained to not be wrong. It's hard to accept otherwise. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously there's a reason to have M&Ms is to to learn from each other, but it does become pretty judgy, pretty quick. And there's, there's a lot of blame game thrown around at some places at certain institutions, but you know, that that's the sad thing is because probably some of the greatest lessons is, uh, in training and in our, even in our careers from our own mistakes. So, you know, it's like, why not learn from each other to help ease the pain? It's also therapeutic when somebody can get up and say, Hey, I had this happen to me as well. It's tough. You'll get through it, but just make sure you learn from it. Well, it's, it's compounded because you have the, uh, the injury to the patient, the injury to your reputation in some cases, and then the financial injury, which is always mediated through an insurance company. And, and any of these things can have a long-term effect on your career. So it's, yeah. uh, it's three prongs. And uh, I know physicians who stopped practicing after they got sued once. Uh, yeah. They were good docs. They did the right thing, but with a bad outcome, it's very devastating. Yeah, it definitely makes you sick to your stomach thinking about that. And so throughout our, our training, you know, we, uh, we hear this, I, I, I'm pretty sure you told me this in, in residency was if you haven't had any complications, you haven't done enough cases, uh, whether it be, you know, neft tube or, uh, even a lung biopsy, was there a point in your career where you felt like you suffered the worst complications? Was it early, mid, late career? Can you just talk about that a little bit? I think it was probably mid and late. Early on, you may not have, again, depending on your perspective and uh, how and where you're trained, you know, you may not take on the most challenging cases. And in that case, you may be avoiding some of the more dramatic complications. On the other hand, uh, at some point in your time, you think you've done this a thousand times and you may blink. And the second that you blink, you may make a mistake. And when that happens, you can't take it back. Uh, one thing that's not to be ignored is that pit you get in your stomach before you start the case. Because if you have a really bad feeling before you go into the room or when you're standing at the table, don't ignore it. Think yeah. about it before you make a puncture <laughs> because it's hard to take back. I, I totally agree. And the, the, it's always the challenging cases that I, that I'm just so anxious about. I have that sick feeling definitely can't eat breakfast or lunch before it because it just, 
it's, it's all consuming and like, you want to, you know, you'll think very carefully stepwise about your approach, how are you going to approach that patient? But that, that's also like when I know that, okay, this is a challenging case. I'm going to learn a great deal from this case and I don't want to not do it because I'm afraid as long as I'm playing, as long as it's going to help the patient. Yeah. And, and one thing to remember is, you know, you may get asked to do something you've never done before. Yeah. And it's really important to tell the patient about your experience, that if you haven't done it, why you're willing to do it in this case. And sometimes you're not willing to do it, but you know who to send the patient to see if you right. don't have the skills, if you don't have the experience. And it's not a failing, especially uh, physicians who practice in uh, large urban areas have tremendous resources. Uh, people who are further out in uh, rural or community hospitals, far from an urban center, may have fewer resources. And sometimes that what's, that's what causes people to do something out of their skill set, out of their range. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, we have, in my group, we have a lot of smaller hospitals on the outskirts where they want, you know, they want IRs there all the time, every day doing cases that they send over when they don't even have the resources available to do a lot of these cases. Um, in fact, I have one such case coming up this week that I just told the, them that they, we got to take a pause and press the brakes because we don't have what, we don't have the devices we need. We don't have the staffing. And it's like, you kind of have to take a step back and plan it out properly. Otherwise bad things are going to happen, you know? And the other thing to remember is, you know, you may walk in and uh, you may not have seen the patient before. And that's a big problem in IR is that yeah. uh, somebody called and scheduled the case and the, the text said, sure, because it didn't sound unusual. Or you have a partner who's not as, uh, doesn't have the experience base. And they say, oh, yeah, we can do this. And if that happens and you walk in on it, uh, that's another time to just take a breath and say, hold it. We need to really do this as a consult. Uh, we really need to go over everything with the patient before we start. Yeah. How do you think that the way, because you've trained a lot of people at Temple and you've also worked with, you know, younger colleagues and how do you see in your experience, how we handle these complications as we progress in our careers? Because I know at first just coming out, it's, it's a real shock to the ego. Like you said, we're used to being gunners and getting a hundreds and, and, you know, it takes a little, it takes a few complications in your belt before you start kind of being a little bit more humble about it and being more open and, and honest about it. And I was just wondering if you had any input on that, given how many people you've trained. I think it's always helps when you are training someone to be 110% honest, to really make sure that you're sending the example at some point in your career, when you're not training people, then, you, you know, you, you take it all on yourself, but you can't forget to be honest with yourself, be honest with the patient, above all, be honest with the family, because uh, when there's a problem, uh, even if the patient happens to uh, suffer a mortal consequence, the family's still going to be there and they may not know yeah. you. And having that relationship or uh, trying to have that relationship at the beginning makes a big difference at the end. Yeah. We were talking about this before. It's really important for you to talk to the family before the procedure, just like, you know, because a lot of times, you, like you said, you're walking into a case. You're a busy day. You just did like three perm casts in a row and you're jumping into something that you may not even, you know, it's like a tricky, you know, neff tube with, for stone disease that is, you know, like a, a big, huge stone. You're not even sure if you're going to have success and the patient's already prepped and draped on the table. And you're like, okay, you, you know, you're under the drape saying hello. It's really important in those cases to go out and find the family if they're there and talk to them and let them know that, Hey, this isn't a hundred percent case. Cause a lot of times. The urologist will 
preface, will say, oh yeah, the IR is just going to get access for me and we'll knock this out. Well, that's kind of, that can set you up for failure and, di- and a lot of disappointment when it comes to the family. But beyond that, it's the small things that get missed. So having been in that situation, well, you got to ask yourself, did they check the coags before they went to put up something from below? Usually not. Did they give uh, sufficient broad spectrum antibiotics? Maybe not. So right. you, you pick up a case in the middle and that's where you can really be uh, at a true disadvantage and you put the patient at a disadvantage and none of that is good. There's no right. substitute for communication before you start. Yeah. That being said, you know, a lot, a lot of young guys coming out and that's a lot of our audience, you know, they may feel pressured to just not ask questions and uh, just go with the flow by older colleagues. Any advice for, for that kind of situation? Cause that, that, you know, in these larger IR groups that, that can be the case where it's just like, no, just go do the case. Let's knock out the board. Let's get the day done. There's no time for pausing and questioning and, you know, all this stuff. Well, I think that's behaving more as a robot in a, or a a cog in a machine. Yeah. And that's not going to do well for you or the patient in the long run. Uh, I think it's very difficult to manage partner expectations. Uh, look, and I've been in situations where the hardest thing to do is you're watching a partner work and you know the partner's about to do something awful and you want to say something to them. And at the same point in time, you know, you're not responsible for them, but you're in a very compromised position just standing in the control room. Right. So, and, and, and at those times, very often it pays to talk to a tech or a nurse who's circulating and have them whisper something in your colleague's ear. Uh, the same thing can happen when you're uh, yeah. a senior person and there's a junior person in doing something. You don't want to intimidate them. You don't want to have the uh, patient know that there's an issue because, you know, we don't have the benefit of general anesthesia for a number of the things we do. But, you know, you may be watching a disaster about to happen. You have to use the tools that you have. And typically that would be uh, a nurse or a tech who you can catch their ear or with a hand signal, have them come over to the door. And just try and defuse things as best you can. Sometimes you can't. And sometimes yeah. it's going to happen no matter what you do. And you feel partially responsible. But the, it's the operator's hands that really are in control. Yeah. So I wanted to jump into, you know, if you're okay with it, maybe a couple of stories. If you would be willing to share a, a complication that you maybe learned the most from. Uh, so I'd say I've had only... Two complications where uh, a patient died. The first one was when I was a participant with uh, a gastroenterologist uh, performing a rendezvous procedure where I uh, placed a transpatic guide wire and the gastroenterologist uh, snared it and was about to do a, a sphincterotomy with a hot loop. And the patient was uh, prone on the interventional table. And the patient happened to be a nurse at the facility. Uh, everybody knew the people, you know, the players all knew each other. And about 10 seconds after the gastroenterologist uh, energized the loop to do the sphincterotomy, the uh, patient had a cardiac arrest. Uh, we immediately uh, started to resuscitate the patient. But there were issues that we hadn't thought about in the past. Uh, some of them had to do with who was administering the medication. Uh, for the most part, it was the uh, the nurse from the GI unit. Some of them had to do with the uh, ability to monitor, monitor adequately pulse ox and pressures. And this was at a point in time where not all these things were done routinely. Hmm. We worked on the patient for about 40 minutes. 
couldn't get her back. And the gastroenterologist was in tears. I was in tears. There was not a dry eye in the entire room because, you know, what, what had happened in that instant? What you know, went back and looked at things? What did we do? You know, it, uh, it, we, nobody had ever seen anything like this. Gastroenterologists never had a problem like this. So we spoke with the family. They were very understanding. Uh, they did not bring legal action against anybody. But the patient uh, went on to have a postmortem, which is very important when you don't know what's going on. And it turned right. out she had a hyperacute massive MI. So gastroenterologist hadn't suspected that the patient had uh, severe coronary artery disease. The woman was in her 50s. Uh, I certainly didn't expect it. And, uh, you know, we underestimated the, the patient's risk factors. Uh, and I guess when the loop was energized, somehow she got a dysrhythmia and that was it. Hmm. And that was, that was bad. And how do you learn from it? I, I think more effective uh, workups of patients who are undergoing unusual procedures, uh, yeah. having a good baseline of uh, preoperative testing but also making sure that uh, all the operators, especially in these uh, combined rendezvous procedures, are uh, really uh, using the same standard of care and how patients are monitored. I think it's better now than it was in the, uh, the mid-90s. Uh, I think we have better trained nurses, pretty sure that we have uh, better trained uh, technologists, and it's, it's just knowing what you're up against before you get in there. The other patient that I had who succumbed was uh, a well-known uh, attorney, and uh, he was referred from uh, a suburban hospital, not a small hospital, large suburban hospital, with the diagnosis of renal artery stenosis. Uh, he had failed uh, multiple medications. He had uh, been on medication to treat multiple sclerosis, and he uh, was otherwise in pretty good health. Hmm. Did a straightforward uh, angioplasty, and the focal pinpoint to renal artery stenosis at the origin looked unchanged and went back with a balloon that was a millimeter or two bigger. Angioplasty it again. No change. And I said, gee, does this person have a diagnosis of neurofibromatosis? I mean, what do we, don't, what do we not know about the patient? No, nope. didn't have a diagnosis of uh, neurofibromatosis because it looked like that sort of smooth pinpoint lesion. At that point, Hamas uh, stents had become available, pre-mounted on balloons. Use a guide to put the, the stent in place, took it up to the appropriate diameter, and the patient had chest pain. We did our follow-up arteriogram, and he had a retrograde dissection to the aortic root, basically a type A dissection from a yeah. renal artery stent placement. Wow. No one ever saw anything like this before. So... We uh, spoke with the family, whisked him over to CT. He had not had a pericardial tamponade, but you could see the dissection plane uh, going back to the valve. He did not have acute aortic insufficiency. He went to the ICU to be monitored for blood pressure control. Uh, his renal artery was fine, but everything else had fallen apart. And uh, went back a little further in his, uh, in his medicine history, and it turned out he was taking a medication called beta serum which was an injection used to treat multiple sclerosis. And there were reports in the literature that it caused vascular weakness. It could cause aneurysms. There were no reports of dissections, but it was not a, a drug that was uh, seen commonly in our practice. Now, the patient spent, I don't know, seven to 10 days in the ICU. I saw him every day. When I went on vacation, I called and spoke to the, the wife and the people in the ICU. 
and the uh, patient ended up not getting uh, aortic surgery. Uh, surgical team had declined to operate. He went home, and about two or three weeks later, his wife went to the basement to get something, and when she came upstairs, he was dead at the kitchen table. I got called because the, uh, the hospital where he was uh, taken to the ER didn't want their name on its chart, and they wanted me to come to that emergency room and pronounce the patient dead. And I said, yeah, as an IR, honestly, this is not something that I feel comfortable doing. He's dead, and right. he's in your ER. So I stayed in touch with the family. I went to the patient's funeral. I was not a pallbearer, but I was there as they walked past and they knew I was there. And eventually the patient brought suit, but not against me. Uh, the patient's family brought suit uh, against the, uh, the surgeons who refused to operate mm. because what I did had unforese unforeseeable, no, no way could have predicted this complication, but the life-saving surgery probably should have been done. So, yeah. you know, these, these are the, you know, the two worst complications uh, in my mind that I've had. And, uh, you know, when I saw patients with MS in the future, I always checked to see if they were taking beta serone. And that's the only learning yeah. point I had from that is, you know, is a patient on steroids or is a patient taking beta serone? Because anything that can cause a weakness of a vessel wall is something you really have to be uh, cognizant of. Yeah. And also just like you emphasized was clear communication with the family always and every day. I mean, that was, I'm sure that obviously it, w it wasn't your fault. It was a random thing, but just so, so that they know you're there available to answer all questions and, and, and help with the process. I think that that probably helped you avoid, you know, being involved in that suit as well. I would think, do you know how, I mean, not to throw anyone under the bus, but the surgeons involved, like how, how are they with communication? Do you remember? Yeah, I have no idea how well they communicated. I wasn't present when they were speaking with the family. Yeah. Uh, and it's always hard to figure out, you know, was this uh, a cardiologist and a surgeon decision? Was it a vascular surgeon's decision or was it a cardiothoracic surgeon's decision? If there's a, a bad complication, in some hospital settings, people jump away. I didn't jump away. I stepped right up. I made sure that I was there. But the people who jumped away were the people who were ultimately held responsible. And, and one thing to remember is that in some settings, uh, especially Philadelphia, there are more lawyers out of work than doctors, and they'll take any case. There's no right. doubt about it that there are some bottom feeders. The majority yeah. of them are, are good attorneys, and you know sometimes a suit will be brought just because you know the, the family is irate, but it doesn't mean they're going to find a, an expert witness who's going to agree with them. And that's the key in many malpractice cases. Need to, need to find an expert witness who will say, yes, this person did something wrong, violated a standard of care. Right. Now, do they have to do that before they file a suit? Or Typically for a case, yeah, for a suit yeah. to be certified, there has to be a physician who can say, yes, this violated a standard of care. Uh, yeah. But at least in Pennsylvania, I know it's that way. I don't know if it's that way in every state. Yeah, cases have to be certified in order to go forward. I've been sued for... Uh, performing an nephrostomy that caused the patient's serum creatinine to decrease. So if you can think about <laughs> how ridiculous that is. Yeah. Oh my gosh. When I got the notice of suit, I didn't wait to talk to the attorney who represented the institution. I called the office, the, uh, the attorney's office directly. And I said, you know, you really don't understand why this was done. You really don't have a clue as to what the benefit was that I provided to the patient. So yeah. if you want to go down this pathway, 
you're going to look like a fool. And the next day I was dropped. So <laughs> well, That saved you a whole lot of headache. I mean, I don't think any, most people would just have not slept that night and gone through the hospital's, you know, attorney and, oh my gosh, that's, that's bold of you to do. But look, I mean, that saved you a whole lot of headache. That's amazing. Yeah, and and look, there's, there's cases where you may just put a pick line in a patient yeah. and something awful happens to the patient further down their hospitalization. And these sort of shotgun suits where they're just going right. to pick every name on the chart, you know, they come back and eventually make it dropped, but it's, uh, it can rattle you when you're young and it's an annoyance later on in your career. And very often, uh, you know, I, a few times I had spoken to the attorneys and I said, drop me now, drop me later, but you're going to drop me. So those are the, uh, the minor things. Those are the minor issues. Well, David, thank you for sharing those stories. Those are um, gut-wrenching to, to hear about. I'm sure that uh, they, it caused you a lot of sleepless nights. And, and um, even to this day, it's, it's got to be pretty stressful to, to talk about it and relive it. So we appreciate you sharing those with us. I was going to just wrap things up with any final thoughts or advice for our, our audience on dealing with complications, any, any pearls, uh, things that you learned al along the way that you've, you haven't already mentioned. No, you just have to own them. You are the person doing the procedure. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. And don't deny them. Just yeah. you, you have to step up and own them. Yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, you know, because what's your take on apologizing or spending a lot of time with the family and or patient and just saying, look, I, you know, this is a complication. It was unexpected. When you own it up, you, when you say own it, I'm assuming you, you own it to the family and you own it to the, the patient. Does that make you more vulnerable or susceptible to suit when you own it? I think there's a general feeling uh, among defense attorneys for physicians that you shouldn't do that. But, and, you know, you may actually end up incurring some additional liability. But I think there's a difference between saying, I feel really bad. I'm sorry. This is unforeseen. And just coming out and saying, I totally screwed up. I shouldn't have done this. So it's, it's a right. very fine line. And the right. other thing is for things that occur in a hospital setting or a corporate setting, there's other parties involved yeah. and they often have their own policies and procedures. So before one immediately turns around and says mea culpa, I think it has, uh, it's to your benefit to know what your resources are within the corporation or within the hospital. Because very often in a hospital setting, they'll want to have a family meeting. Right. They'll tape record it. They may video record it. And uh, this involves uh, you know, hospital administrators, hospital attorneys. So risk it's management. Risk yeah. management. It's a, it's a very, things that occur in a hospital are more complicated. Yeah. I think things that occur in your OBL are a lot more straightforward. And things that occur in, a, in an outpatient setting where you have a corporation maintaining ownership and administering, it's close to as, the same way it is in a hospital where uh, you feel a little bit hamstrung about what you can say and what you should say. Right. Appreciate those uh, pearls, Dr. Ball. I appreciate spending the time to come on. And uh, to our listeners, thanks again for tuning into the show. Again, you can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, backtable.com. If you really like what we're doing, please re leave us a review on iTunes. Have a great day. Thanks, David. Hey, Aaron, anytime. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore backtable on Instagram 
Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson and Vivek Prasad. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.